from the Apostle Paul. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he was writing to a bunch of people like you and I in a local church who had questions around different aspects of our faith. And Paul specifically wrote about the resurrection. He said this, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Indeed. You know, the resurrection is one of those aspects of our faith that in the culture that we're immersed in leaves us open at times to um, criticism or ridicule. Oh, you believe that Jesus raised from, rose from the dead, do you? <laughs> Good one. It, it often gets equated with fairy stories or myth or legend as something that's maybe nice to believe in, but come on, you're not seriously believing that, are you? People are maybe happy enough to admit that Jesus Christ was a historical figure and that he was a great teacher or that maybe he was a great prophet, but all this talk about him being the son of God and having risen from the dead, oh, that's a bit much, isn't it? I love the words of, of C.S. Lewis, the author who's responsible for the Chronicles of Narnia and other things. He wrote this in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Well, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. Hmm. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. God, right. oh, just let's end the service right there and <laughs> go and have a cuppa. Boom. <laughs> See, what we have recorded in the Gospels does not actually allow at an intellectually credible level the conclusion that Jesus was just a good teacher because his claims about himself were so much more than that. We believe that Jesus died for our sins on the cross. We believe that on the third day, the power of God rose him from the dead and that he is alive. Yes, it seems out there to many people in the culture in which we are immersed, but this is central to our faith. And I want to remind you this morning on Easter Sunday that there is an intellectually credible foundation for faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that it does not require you to switch off your brain and just believe in a fairy story. 
there's an intellectual credibility about putting faith in Jesus Christ, not just as a good teacher, not just as a miracle worker or a prophet, but as the person he claimed to be, the Son of God, come in human flesh. Let's read what we have in the recorded for us in the Gospels about the resurrection of Jesus. This is from John's Gospel, John chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, when it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So pause there. Straight away, when you have... Mary, witnessing the fact that the tomb was empty, she straight away drew a conclusion to explain what she saw. And what she thought at that point is that somebody else had taken the body of Jesus. And so she was disturbed by that. Let's read on. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. This is John, the author. I love how he describes himself in such modest terms. I'm faster than Peter, always was. (laughs) He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along, finally, behind him, and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen that had been around Jesus' body lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Interesting little detail. Finally, the other disciple who'd reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. But they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. She's still in this place where, for all we know, she's thinking that someone else has stolen the body of Jesus. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener. I love that. She said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, don't hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Though Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. Wow. There's a lot going on there. And I find it fascinating that the way that This is particularly recorded in John's gospel. Mary is a very human character in the story. And she sees things and she draws very natural conclusions around what she saw. When she was confronted with an empty tomb, her immediate conclusion was that somebody had stolen the body of Jesus. And that disturbed her. That someone would show such dishonor to the body of her friend, her teacher. This man who she believed so much about. 
But obviously what we believe is that it wasn't a case that someone just stole the body. Eventually, Jesus reveals himself to her and says, Mary, it's me, I'm alive. And she's astounded. She's in awe of that. As Matt talked about, awe is this natural response to encountering the risen Jesus. The question I just want to explore a little bit this morning is how can we have confidence that Jesus did rise from the dead? To claim that the resurrection is the backbone of the Christianity requires us to kind of delve into this a little bit and have a certainty within our spirit that doesn't just rest on facts or information. But my conviction and my belief is that the Holy Spirit uses information and as we engage in a process of discovery, he begins to reveal things to our hearts to get us to a point where we know where it becomes personal as Matt talks about. This Easter, the Easter story is not just an abstract story. Oh, it's a nice sentiment that Jesus died for all of us, for lost people. The Holy Spirit wants to bring that down to an acutely personal level for every single one of us, where we would know that Jesus went through it all for me and that he is alive to be with me every step of the journey moving forward. How can we have a confidence that Jesus did actually rise from the dead? Jesus lived, he taught, and he claimed to be the Messiah. He was crucified, and after three days, the tomb where he was laying was empty. These are the gospel facts. His disciples then claimed that he was risen from the dead and that he appeared to them various times, before ascending into heaven. From that foundation, the Christian faith spread throughout the Roman Empire and ultimately spread throughout the whole world to exert an incredible transforming influence. But what is the evidence available to warrant belief in the resurrection? Let's dig a little bit deeper. When Jesus was buried... His body, in accordance with Jewish burial customs, was wrapped in a linen cloth. About 100 pounds or 45 kgs of spices and ointment were applied to the wrappings of cloth about the body. After the body was placed in a solid rock tomb, an extremely large stone weighing approximately two tons was rolled by means of levers against the entrance of the tomb. A Roman guard termed a custodia of strictly disciplined men was stationed to guard the tomb. Incidentally, the Roman guard was put there specifically at the request of the Jewish authorities to prevent the body being stolen and prevent rumors about Jesus possibly being resurrected spreading. We read this in Matthew 27. It said that the chief priests and the Pharisees, they went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples might come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. 
So precautions were being taken to stop the spread of rumors about Jesus supposedly being resurrected. This custodia of Roman guards who were posted there was a 16-man security unit who were highly trained to protect six square feet of ground each. So with a 16-man square of highly trained Roman soldiers, they were able to protect 96 feet of ground against an entire invading army. They were trained. They knew what they were doing. They weren't just like Dad's army. You know, I remember Dad's army. It wasn't just like, oh, post a guard. I'll send those guys. It wasn't like Dad's army, okay? These guys were like the Green Berets, like the commandos. They knew what they were doing, and they were not to be messed with. In this... Roman military unit, if one man in the custodia failed in his duty, he was automatically executed, along with the other 15 men, each being stripped of their clothes and burned alive in a fire started by their own garments. That's the discipline and fear of the Roman army. So again, these soldiers who are pastored there to guard the tomb of Jesus, they were very aware that if they failed in their duty, there were very dire consequences for them personally. The Roman seal was placed on the tomb. If you messed with the tomb, you were messing with the authority and the power of Rome. It was to be an incentive to give it a wide berth. But the tomb was empty. The followers of Jesus said that he had risen from the dead. They reported that he appeared to them during a period of 40 days, showing himself to them by many convincing proofs. This is what Luke says in his introduction to the book of Acts. He says, in my former book, which was his gospel, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul later wrote that Jesus Christ appeared after his resurrection to more than 500 people at one time. Theologian Paul Althus wrote that the resurrection could, quote, not have been maintained in Jerusalem for a single day, for a single hour, if the emptiness of the tomb had not been established as a fact for all concerned. And yet Jerusalem was the first city that the message of Jesus as the resurrected Son of God spread into. If the message of the resurrection was false, if it was all a big joke or a fabrication, if it was fake news, then all the authorities had to do to put an end to the silly rumor was produce evidence that it wasn't true, but they didn't because they couldn't. The message of the resurrection, salvation in Jesus Christ, it spread all around Jerusalem and then to other parts of the world. And the apostles consistently appealed to the resurrection as a key part of their preaching that Jesus is the Son of God and that there is salvation in his name. There's three main theories that attempt to alternatively explain the empty tomb. 
Because again, if the tomb was empty, and if you're not going to believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead, how are you going to explain the empty tomb? It's all well and good for people to say, oh, you Christians are a bit funny. You believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, if you're not going to believe on that, how are you going to explain the empty tomb? Well, there's the wrong tomb theory. This theory says that the woman who discovered the empty tomb simply went to the wrong one. It's not a particularly convincing theory. Why would the woman who observed his burial go to the wrong tomb? And if they went to the wrong tomb, then the disciples and the authorities and everyone else had to kind of follow suit, right? And surely, if it was just a case of the wrong tomb, somebody would have gone, oh, hang on a second, we're in the wrong place. But that didn't happen. Again, if the wrong tomb was involved, the Jewish authorities would have lost no time in producing the body from the actual tomb. They would have just said, hey, look, this is all a bit silly. Here is the proof. They couldn't do that. So the wrong tomb theory doesn't have a lot of substance to it. There's the swoon theory. This is the theory that says that Jesus didn't actually die. He merely fainted, passed out from exhaustion and from the loss of blood, and later he regained consciousness and emerged from the tomb. So everyone thought him dead, but later he resuscitated, and the disciples just thought it was a resurrection. I, um, I intentionally wore my um, Star Wars t-shirt today because I kind of thought of this one as being a little bit like Han Solo being frozen in carbonite. It's part of the Star Wars story where Han Solo is caught and then they need to restrain him, so they freeze him in carbonite, which essentially means he's not dead, but he, he's frozen, and then they wake him up later on. Jesus was not frozen in carbonite. There's a one-liner for you to take from church this morning. Jesus didn't just pass out later to come to. We read clearly about what was inflicted upon Jesus not just in the crucifixion, but in the torture leading up to it. He was whipped, he was beaten, he was nailed to a cross. His side was pierced by a spear, and he was placed in a rock tomb. In order for the swoon theory to hold, Jesus must have woken up in that tomb, somehow been able to get out of all the cloth that was wrapped around his body, somehow make his way to the entrance of the tomb and somehow move the two-ton stone away from the entrance to the tomb, overpower the Roman guard unit, and then emerge as the king of glory. I um, had an interesting wee experience yesterday morning. Saturday morning, we take Niall to swimming lessons at the pool, so I put my swimming togs on, um, which is a sight to behold, um, and Bron, my wife, said to me, what's that on your leg? And I said, what do you mean? And she got her phone and, and took a photo of the back of my leg. And, and last Saturday, I tweaked my hamstring playing my first game of soccer in seven years. And it's been feeling a bit average all week. But I had no idea. There's actually this enormous bruise that covers my whole leg. It's ridiculous. I was like, oh, well, I couldn't see that during the week. It looks worse than it feels, to be fair now. But I have been kind of limping around a little bit all week from a minor hamstring strain. If Jesus passed out and then came to, 
I shudder to think of the state of that guy with the wounds that he was carrying, with the loss of blood, the physical effects of what he had endured. Where some would say it's a stretch of the imagination to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I say it's a stretch of the imagination to believe in the swoon theory. It's a stretch. There's the stolen body theory. As the name suggests, someone else just took the body of Jesus out of the tomb. But once again, we've got to think it through. Who would have stolen it? Professor E.F. Keevan states, the enemies of Jesus had no motive for moving the body of Jesus. In fact, they had a guard placed there so this rumor wouldn't start. So the enemies had no motive for moving the body of Jesus, and the friends of Jesus had no power to do so. The enemies of Jesus had no motive to move the body. The friends of Jesus did not have the power to do it, even if they wanted to. So, the stolen body theory, it's a stretch. Even back in the first century, the story, the message of the resurrection began to circulate, and naturally there were people who were skeptical of this message. So this, this doesn't equate to what I've experienced. When someone is dead, they don't genuinely, generally come back to life again. So people were skeptical and unsure about this. There's a man by the name of Justin Martyr who was a philosopher and an apologist. He's described as a man who was an eager seeker for the truth before he became a Christian. So he is described as knocking at the doors of Stoicism, Aristotelianism, Pythagoreanism, and Platonism. He was basically trying to find answers everywhere. And there were a lot of different schools of thought in the Greco-Roman world. But then in his searching he began to study the life and the, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He became a follower of Jesus Christ, and he said, I found this philosophy alone to be safe and profitable. It's quite amazing. The message of the resurrection, our, our faith in it does not rest purely on intellectual facts. But I want to remind you this Easter Sunday that it's not as much of a stretch to put our faith in the risen Jesus as some in our culture would perhaps believe or suggest. Some have suggested that the available historical evidence would likely be sufficient to win a contemporary court case were the question of Jesus' resurrection brought before a court of law. The fact that it is an event in time and human history takes the question of Christianity's reliability out of the realm of philosophy and puts it in the realm of history. Let me close with this. Some might still say the story of the resurrection was just a fabrication that the disciples of Jesus developed, maybe as a way of processing their grief or their disappointment that Jesus was gone. If that were the case, surely when suffering and persecution became the lot of the young Christian church, surely at that point we'd expect there to be a significant abandonment of the lie. Like it's all well and good to believe a story when there's no cost. But when you start being threatened with execution if you don't recant the lie... That's the acid test. 
the historical fact that many men and women faced not only the threat of execution, but the carrying out of it, and they did not recant their faith in Jesus because for them, why would I go back on something that I am thoroughly convinced is true? It's interesting. If it were just a story, if it was just something we made up, when there comes a cost, we tend to not really hold to those stories too long. Many of you may remember the Watergate scandal, which was a major political scandal. No, too young. I can't scream. No, no, before my time, before my time. <laughs> this was back in 1974 in the United States involving the administration of President Richard Nixon. It led to Nixon's resignation. The scandal stemmed from the Nixon administration's persistent attempts to cover up its involvement in a break-in of the Democratic National Committee headquarters in the Watergate office building. Charles Colson was an attorney and political advisor who served as a special counsel to President Nixon from 69 to 70. He was once known as President Nixon's hatchet man. Colson gained notoriety at the height of the Watergate scandal for being named as one of the Watergate Seven. In 74, he served a term in a federal prison as the first member of the Nixon administration to be incarcerated for the Watergate scandal. Colson became a Christian in 1973. His midlife conversion sparked a radical life change that led to the founding of his non-profit ministry, Prison Fellowship. This is what Charles Colson says about the resurrection. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have ensured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. I love that. It's an interesting historical reflection, right? Final quote, and then I'm done. Lee Strobel, who was an investigative journalist who sought to disprove the Christian faith in the process, became a Christian. He says this, I didn't become a Christian because God promised I would have an even happier life than I had as an atheist. He never promised any such thing. Rather, I became a Christian because the evidence was so compelling that Jesus really is the one and only Son of God who proved his divinity by rising from the dead. That meant following him was the most rational and logical step I could possibly take. It's Easter Sunday. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's good news. And it's good news when we reflect on the story and when we remember that there is an intellectual credibility that undergirds our faith. Maybe you're here on Easter Sunday kind of going, oh, I get a hard time from my friends or my family or other people I know for being a Christian at this time of year. They say, oh, you're off to church to celebrate your imaginary friend, Jesus. Good work. You know, 
this, this can be the case for us. I want to remind you and encourage you today that there is an intellectual credibility about the message we proclaim and believe, that we do not need to switch our brains off and just believe in what the Bible says. History itself affirms and points in the same direction as what we proclaim and what we believe.